Hello, I'm Stuart Chidenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is poet and teacher, Sarah McKinstry-Brown. Our conversation is being recorded by Zoom. Poet and teacher Sarah McKinstry-Brown is originally from Albuquerque, where they put green chili on everything and are gifted each day with Technicolor sunsets. She is the author of Cradling Monsoons, published by Blue Light Press in 2010, and This Bright Darkness, published by Black Lawrence Press 2019. Sarah has received an Academy of American Poets Prize, a few Nebraska Book Awards, as well as a Swanee Writers Conference Tennessee Williams Scholarship in Poetry, and a Nebraska Arts Council Individual Artist Fellowship Award. Sarah holds an MFA in Poetry. She describes her creative origins and desire to be part of a larger writing community as emerging in slam poetry, from the informal education gained while attending poetry readings at coffee houses, bars, and libraries in Albuquerque that fueled her desire to be part of a larger writing community. Sarah's inspiration resides in a house in Omaha, where she lives with her husband, Nebraska State poet Matt Mason, and a former guest on this show, and her two feisty daughters. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Stuart. I'm really happy to be here with you. You and I were talking just before we came on air, and we were noodling on this idea of what is the function of poetry and what is the role of a poet in society, especially given these tumultuous times, whether it's the pandemic or social unrest or the nature of politics, international relations, what it means to be good. And I want to ask you that question then, uh, what is the function of poetry? What is the role of a poet? Sure. Um, well, as, as I began earlier um, with our conversation, I, I think the function of the poet is to create space, to make space for silence and contemplation. And at the same time, I think the role of the poet is to make a lot of noise <laughs> and to be a disruptor and to, to call out and articulate things that are maybe being felt by others, but not yet articulated. I just had an experience, um, so I, I teach at UNO, and I just had an experience of teaching two odes side by side um, with my students. And one was Evie Shockley's Ode to My Blackness. And the other was Sharon Olds's poem, Ode to My Whiteness. And we were able to look at both of those poems and have a conversation essentially about white privilege, which is something that, that is just now becoming part of the, the vocabulary of sort of the, the larger culture, popular culture. And I looked back um, for the sake of my students, I said, I think this was published quite some time ago. Let me, let me look back and see. And, and Sharon Old's book that had Ode to My Whiteness had been published in 2016. 
And it, it was just a beautiful reminder of the fact that, um, you know, poets at their best kind of have their ear to the ground and are paying attention in a way that other folks don't have the, the time or the, or the luxury, or maybe it's just sort of not their, um, not their gift. You know, and, and in the same way, I don't think many Black poets have had um, the luxury of saying, oh, yes, well, we have our, our ear to the ground. I mean, that's sort of part of the experience of being Black in America. You are, you are living um, these tensions and um, waiting for the rest of, of us folks to sort of catch up. So it was just a reminder that poems can be the, a great gateway for difficult conversations, um, that poets have long, as I said, sort of had, their, had an ear to the ground, and um, that poets have a responsibility to inhabit a space that is filled with, um, with tension, you know, articulating against silence, but also creating space and silence. So you and I are chatting maybe 45 minutes after the major networks have declared Joe Biden uh, president-elect. In this moment and over the next several days, I'm sure there will be many, many pundits and talking heads, but also community activists and people in neighborhoods talking about, well, what now? And that makes me wonder then, do you have a poetry prescription for that conversation? Wow, that's such a great, that's such a great question. I'm not thinking of any, any specific poems or any specific way forward, except that poems can be such a great, they can create opportunities to have difficult conversations with ourselves, right, as we're reading them. But also particularly if we're, if we're having conversations with other folks um, about different poems. And so, it's really, it's about the dialogue. It's about, you know, something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, and I said this to my students when we were talking about Ode to Blackness and Ode to Whiteness. And I mean, it was really challenging to have this conversation, you know, through Zoom and at this particular moment in history, you know. And I said, you know, look, this is, this is really challenging. It's challenging to have these conversations because as a country and as a culture, we've for so long refused to have, have them, or we didn't think that we had to have them. We didn't think it was necessary. And so it's almost like we don't have the vocabulary yet, the language, the, the practice to, you know, get it out there and talk about race and talk about gender and talk about class and, and you know, all of these conversations that we're, that we're all having right now. So the prescription is dialogue. And I think the dialogue can happen around literature in a way that makes literature a kind of safe space. And to that end, the connection I see between that and then my latest collection, This Bright Darkness, you know, those are all persona poems. So they're all written in the voice of, of characters. And it has not been lost on me that, that many of my dear friends who are also women and who are poets and other poets thrive in the space of persona because it's almost like you can be your more authentic self. You can say more. You can, you can embrace all of your contradictions. You can say the hard things when it is through this persona. Perhaps persona is the prescription as well. Um, writing poems in different voices. 
So we have a responsibility, I think, to really be aware of the power of language. And we also have a responsibility to do more to try to embody other points of view and other experiences and write in those other voices. There's a wonderful poet by the name of Patricia Smith, who I deeply admire, who wrote a short, um, I don't know if it was an essay or a chapter in a book on persona. She's known for her persona poems. And she said, you know, I think all poets have two throats. You know, and then I, and I, I just love that image. Then I've also been thinking, I think all poets have sort of infinite throats. For me, at the crux of all great literature and poetry, it's about empathy and imagination. And I feel that is the medicine. And it can be found in, in poems. When we wake, hear the birds and see the sun. Side by side, our fears are done. Oh, the good times just begun. did talk about your book collection, uh, This Bright Darkness. Um, the book itself explores the complexities of the mother-daughter relationship by retelling the myth of the rape of Persephone. Give people a primer on, sure. on the myth itself and you know, what, what is that story? So the rape of Persephone, um, it was the story created by the Greeks to explain the changes in season. And so the idea is that Demeter... Um, and I've heard it pronounced Demeter and Demeter, but I believe it's Demeter, um, the goddess of the harvest, had this beautiful daughter, Persephone. And Persephone, and she adored Persephone. And Persephone loved going out and picking flowers and being out in nature. And some of the versions, Zeus is Persephone's father. And Hades, uh, the god of the underworld, Zeus's brother, um, says, you know, I have seen this beautiful creature. I want her to be my bride. Zeus says, I will make that happen for you. And um, to do that, he plants this beautiful uh, flower for the picking um, because he knows that Persephone loves flowers. So she goes to pick the flower and in many versions, um, the earth opens as she's uprooting it. And Hades comes up in his chariot and he abducts her and takes her down to the underworld. Her mother, Demeter, in her grief, not knowing where her daughter has gone, stops the earth from providing. So everything's going to stop growing and the world is going to go barren because she's experiencing this intense level of grief and she wants to know where her daughter is. In the meantime, Persephone is tricked into um, eating pomegranate seeds while she's in the underworld by Hades. And if you eat any food in the underworld, you are forever bound to it. A deal is brokered once um, Demeter finds out where her daughter is and once Zeus realizes the ramifications of, of Persephone um, being in the underworld and taken away from her mother. 
but now Persephone can only be above ground with her mother six months out of the year and the rest of the month she must be in the underworld because of the six pomegranate seeds she she ate. And so while Persephone is in the underworld, it's, it's autumn, it's winter, nothing is growing. When she's able to come back and be with her mother, everything is sort of in full bloom. So that's, that's the myth. And originally when I started writing the poems, which I didn't know they were going to be a full collection of poems, I just, these, these poems sort of started coming to me. I was pretty fixated on um, the abduction of Persephone and the rape of Persephone. That trauma was what was calling me to write these poems. And a big part of that, as I look back and reflect, um, has to do with my own anxieties about being the mother of daughters. Moving through the world as a woman in a woman's body and knowing what that means and the ways in which it can make you vulnerable to acts of violence. Having daughters is just terrifying in a lot of ways. So I was trying to work through, I think, that fear and anxiety I felt as the mother of daughters. But the more I wrote the poems, the less it was a, became about sort of the, the trauma and the horror of the abduction of Persephone um, and the rape of Persephone and what she experienced. And it became more about what happens when Persephone comes back and essentially has PTSD. I had this image of Persephone, the first time she can come, finally come back from the underworld, her mother is so excited that then everything's in bloom. Yes, she's back. And yet Persephone has been through hell. Earlier, we talked about, you know, poems having this kind of tension in them. For me, that, that was a big part of the tension is like when you've literally gone through hell or been through hell, which, which we all have in our lives in, in varying degrees, perhaps. And yet you, you open the door, you step outside and the sun is shining or things are in bloom or the world is still turning. You know, people are still talking on their phones and smiling and walking by. You know, how do you make sense of that? And so it became about that tension, you know, how do you move through the world having gone through trauma? But then the more I wrote, I was like, oh no, this is about the mother-daughter relationship, which is just incredibly fraught, just on its own, you know, no drama, <laughs> stepping even out of the myth, real life. It's, a, you know, I think fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, it's a lot like looking in the mirror in a lot of ways. There's more tension, there's more conflict. It feels like there's more at stake when you're interacting with your daughters as a mother and sort of trying to teach them how to move through the world. So that became the fuel for the collection. And I think it was through those poems, I was able to be reminded of what it means to be a daughter and then also to process some of my own anxieties and fears about being a mother. And I got to inhabit both of those spaces and work through a lot of my own anxieties. It never rings in California The sun is always shining right 
people are smiling, making plans, hiding behind their shades, and you're doing the same. No rain, no flowers, nothing's growing where your heart is fire. But baby, I bet you're cold without me, even when it's 90 degrees. Without me, I bet that you can get in. I feel like there is so much to unpack in the book itself and the subject matter and your approach to it that we'll never get to it all. Um, so just a few questions. You mentioned the mother-daughter relationship, and I wonder how your daughters have taken and responded to the work, and, and what has their response been? Well, that's a great question, but the answer is not much. <laughs> um, uh, my, my oldest daughter, who's, a, who's a, objectively a fantastic poet, <laughs> I know I'm her mother, but um, you know, she's really coming to her own in terms of her own writing I can't say that she's read, I had her read one of the poems, which is, which is about her and about her identity as a, you know, quote unquote, tomboy. And again, we're coming up with new language to talk about gender and talk about identity. So even that is sort of, you know, it's, it's outdated at this point. So I look forward to the ways in which language is going to start helping us reshape how we think about gender. But um, so she, she did read that one and she kind of went, huh. My daughters were at the book release party, and so they did hear me read um, from the collection. And, you know, they didn't, they didn't say much about it. I mean, they just, you know, I'm their mom, and I happen to write poems. And I, I think, though, what I feel really excited about is the idea that when they become much older, when they become adults, they're going to have this marvelous window into their parents' you know, world and sort of psyche and um, our inner worlds. I think it'll be more meaningful for my kids later on. But right now, they just, um, you know, they really haven't thought or said much about the book. In 2016, Donald Trump was openly revealed to brag about grabbing women between their legs. But also since then, we've witnessed the growth of a, a movement labeled Me Too, and it's in that context that the book, This Bright Darkness, was published. And I'm just wondering if, if we could look at the Me Too movement or look at how we see the genderization of society through a different lens, if, if we look at it through myth and, and your poetry. Again, I think persona poems or retelling of an old story, you know, going back to a myth, it can become like a, a wonderful, beautiful, safe space to work through um, current um, anxieties. So what was interesting is I started writing this book in, I'm not sure if I, if I remember the exact year, but it was a good five year, four or five years before the Me Too movement really came to the forefront. And I have a couple of really close friends of mine who are poets and who are women. And I kept saying, I don't know why I keep writing these poems. I just feel like no one's going to care about them. I, you know, it's, it's based on this, old, on this myth. It's, you know, it's this old story. It's about mothers and daughters. And culturally, you know, 
mother and daughter relationships aren't really considered like the stuff of, of great interest or intrigue or, you know, great literature even. And so I, I was really feeling like, why, why am I, why do I keep going back to this project? And so when the Me Too movement took hold and, and the, then the book came out, I did feel like, okay, I was sort of tapping into something that I could feel rising to the surface within me and, and, I, and with the women around me, certainly. And what I'll say about the book is that one of the greatest compliments I got about the collection came from a handful of men who were at a, a reading that I did at a very conservative uh, private college and the audience was made up of, it was three quarters men. And after I did the reading, a handful of the professors who were there came up to me and, you know, were talking and, and one of them said, I just felt so uncomfortable. It was like a visceral response. He said he could physically feel them in his body. And a lot of these poems, I think, do have that kind of image, imagery in them, that kind of language that forces you to be aware of the body. And when he said that, it occurred to me that that is one of the luxuries, I think, of, of being a man um, or identifying as a, as a man is that there's just much less emphasis on your body you know, how you dress it, its size, how you carry yourself, how you move through the world, right? And in a way, all those things could be the, you know, women have been taught to believe that those are the things that are going to get us to where we need to be. But we've also been told those are the things that are going to, that are going to harm us, right? Or those are the things that, um, you know, the rules are always changing and we need to always be figuring out kind of what those rules are for us in terms of how we're supposed to move through the world in our bodies. And so that was just a very gratifying moment of thinking, okay, if nothing else, if a, if a man has an experience of reading these poems and feeling uncomfortable in their skin or just feeling that sense of like, yes, I am in a body, um, that's something, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a big thing. And, and I see it in my conversations with my husband as we work to raise two daughters together. There are things that my husband is a, a wonderful man. He's, he's got a, a fantastic heart. He's so empathetic. Um, he's incredibly progressive. And yet all of that sort of intellect and even that heart, it can't quite put you in this, in the physical space of what it means to be a woman and move through the world. How frightening it can be and how difficult it can be to navigate the world as a woman. I certainly as a reader, as a male reader, felt both the beauty and the brutality of the imagery in the work. The instant recognition I have of that's what it is to be a man. 
and so that, uh, you know, I have the privilege and the luxury of being uncomfortable uh, with that. Maybe now's a great time to ask if, if you read something. I would love to, but I also just want to thank you for saying um, the, the privilege and the luxury of being uncomfortable. I mean, that's just such a, that's just such a beautiful statement. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard anyone put it that way. So thank you. Yeah, so let me, I would love to, to read the opening poem, and I have a bit of a story behind it as well. The opening poem is called Chorus. After 13 months of searching, the girl's body is found five miles from our house. So the book is told in the voices of Demeter and Persephone alternating, but there are also poems that are labeled as chorus poems. And so traditionally, um, in ancient Greece and ancient Greek theater, the chorus that was the group of voices that filled the gaps in the story and sort of moved things along. And in this collection, I reimagined the chorus as um, groups of flowers speaking, mothers who have miscarried. I mean, it was my way of bringing more contemporary voices and perspectives into the collection. This poem was actually in my first collection of poems, Cradling Monsoons. I had the luxury and privilege of attending a writer's conference where I was able to work with the fantastic poet, Natasha Trethaway. I said, I've been trying to make this book work for so long. I, I, I've been trying to get it published for so long, but I can tell it's just not right. Something's just not clicking just yet. I said, but I think I have this idea if I open the collection with this poem from my previous collection, I think that'll get me on the path I need to, to get on to, to figure out how to structure this book and what it needs to look like. And she said, well, why don't you read me, the, read me the poem? So I read her the poem and she just, without hesitation, as soon as I finished, she snapped her fingers. She said, that's it. And then she heard this little sound. We were outdoors. We were in Vermont in these beautiful Adirondack chairs sitting on the hills of Vermont under a tree. And shared this noise. And she said, what, what is that noise? And I looked over and I said, oh, that's a woodpecker. And she said, well, I'm a firm believer in symbolism. And she said, everything that's happening around us is trying to tell us something and has something to say. So when, when our meeting is over, you need to look up what a woodpecker symbolizes. So I looked it up and I found uh, this little uh, excerpt from a a uh, Jungian philosophy book, and Carl Jung had described the woodpecker as being a symbol of giving life or finding life and sustenance in something that one had thought was dead or rotted out or sort of a lost cause. It was just what I needed. I, I came back from the writer's conference. I slid this poem as the opening poem in the manuscript and started re rewriting and reworking, and that's when everything really fell into place. So, so that's one of the reasons this poem is so important to me. But also, it was actually written after a um, young woman, uh, sort of to honor a young woman locally who, who uh, disappeared, who was abducted and murdered, uh, Amber Harris. So that's the poem. So chorus, after 13 months of searching, the girl's body is found five miles from our house. Nights we sat down to dinner, interlaced our fingers and recited the Lord's Prayer. She was there, taking root, a seed with his seed inside her. Abandoned by the sun, lost in the thick woods of some man's fever, we can't stop looking at our daughters. 
And when the girl's mother appears on the evening news, distraught but grateful for a body, we understand. From the deep well of our wombs, we draw our daughters up, bring them to our breast, quench a thirst they didn't know they had, saddle them with hunger so they might stay. Let it not be his hands that claimed her. Let it be the tender dirt, the earth slowly awakening to her body as it softens in the sun, preparing her, each pearl of larva working to ease the burden, to release her from the body that caught his gaze. Thank you for sharing that and the backstory too. Is there another poem you'd like to read from the collection? Sure. Um, let me think. So this is Persephone tells her mother about the moment she and Hades parted. When he placed the coin on my tongue and thumbed my eyelid shut, I softened. I know your world has come undone. You need to believe the truth is a tossed coin two sides spinning in the sun. You need to believe that we all fall on one side or the other. What chasm would you be forced to cross if you saw us lingering at the gates, him holding my gaze as I turned that fruit round and round in my palm? What if the hands that push us into the fire are the same ones that pick us up when we fall? Oh, mother, what choice is there when we have none? That's beautiful. Thank you. Let me go, let me say everything is not okay. Let's cut to the chase. Oh.
I'm sure I read somewhere that you said something about um, the beginning, the emergence of this work was at a writing residency at the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center, that for several days you just were experiencing you know, the, the daunting creative emptiness that comes from this weight of expectation that you would produce something. And that got me wondering about how does inspiration strike you and how do you go about the craft of writing? So um, that's a great question. And it's one that I, that the answer is always changing for me. I'll tell you what I've learned about myself. And, but I also understand that uh, it's, it's going to just keep changing and sort of evolving. And uh, as I continue to write and just sort of be a human being moving through the world. I don't know if you've read Stephen King's book on writing. So I haven't read the whole book, but I have read uh, an excerpt making, I think making some money off of his writing finally, or finally having something that allowed him to get a, like a really beautiful desk and, you know, kind of set it out and say, okay, here's my writing desk. And when he went to go sit down, he, he couldn't write at all. And he missed the utility closet he had been sitting in before. Um, and and I, I learned that lesson for myself, and it was a lesson I had to learn. I decided to take a leap and get a studio space for a year. I signed a year-long lease for a studio space back in 2015, I think it was. And I thought, I'm, I have to try this out. You know, this is the equivalent of me seeing what it feels like, maybe to lean in a little bit more to, to being a, a writer in like a more concrete way, right? Because so much of what we do as writers is so... You can't really measure it. You know, there's so many revisions. No one sees all the words that you've deleted and written and moved around. And so it's so sort of like ephemeral and there's not much to, 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 to latch onto. And so this was sort of a concrete thing I could do. And it, it was really sort of horrible. I mean, it was, um, I felt tremendous pressure. There was money coming out of the family bank account so that I could have this space. Um, I felt tremendous pressure to be writing in that space, but not, and not even just to be writing, but to be writing brilliantly, but then also to be writing poems that, you know, could be published so that they could be part of a collection because, you know, it was just all tied up in that. I'm glad for that lesson. That was a lesson I, I, I had to learn for myself. And it just sort of reminded me that the core of who I am, I mean, I've always been I've always been a bit of a rebel and folks that know me now as adult Sarah are sort of shocked when they hear me say that, but I was a pretty wild child. Um, I had a very wild adolescence, um, very wild early college experience. Uh, I like, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a cautious daredevil. I'm always at odds with myself in that way. And so as soon as somebody tells me, here's this thing you need to do and do it this way, I don't want to do it. I do better when I'm sort of tricking myself into thinking that I'm not really writing, you know, but often my best writing has been done at my couch in the living room with, you know, the TV on or some sort of distraction. And then it's a way of kind of tricking my brain into thinking like nothing special is happening here. I'm just sort of playing around because I think play is such a, an important part of these early drafts. When I move deeper into a draft, when things get more serious and I feel like I need to start kind of drilling down on things, then I do need a, a lot of uninterrupted space and silence. And I do need my environment to be a little bit more controlled. But I, I have to trick myself early on into thinking that like nothing special is really happening, you know, nothing to see here.
it sounds like you create a Trojan horse around yourself so that you can you know, slide creativity in unnoticed. Yeah, I love, yeah, I love that metaphor. So you're a teacher. You're a teacher of uh, creative writing, of poetry. And so I want to turn that around and ask you, what have you learned from being a teacher? What comes to mind immediately, I've had the, the real privilege and the joy and the, and the pleasure of teaching a course called Autobiographical Reading and Writing at UNO for, for a very long time. I taught my first Autobiographical Reading and Writing course at UNO in, in 2011, I believe it was. And um, teaching that course, you know, it just keeps me human. I have the, the honor and the privilege, as I, as I said, of reading these students' stories. It's autobiographical reading and writing. So we, we read other pieces of creative work and we talk about them. And then they generate their own work, sometimes modeling their work after what we've read, sometimes not. I feel like the image that has come to me often is just sort of like, like a, just a vessel. Like I just get filled up with all their stories. And some of them are, you know, harrowing and tragic. Um, and some of them are, are, you know, beautiful and uplifting. And some are just sort of everyday, you know, here's this, this thing that happened in my life that was really wonderful and that kind of shaped me in this way. It keeps me feeling like I am part of the human family, the human experience. I think especially as we age, it gets easier to sort of like enter that get off my lawn space, right? Uh, and the pandemic is certainly exacerbating this in the sense that like, we just don't have, and this is where you know, I told you before we started recording, I said, I might start crying. So forgive me, but there's so few spaces and opportunities for people to be human in a space together, just to be human, just, just to talk and just kind of be in a space. There's so few opportunities but I, but I think specifically so few opportunities for us to be in spaces with folks who we wouldn't normally share a space with, right? So to be able to have all these students' stories coming to me, I mean, just last week I read a, a student wrote a story about being, um, being in line to get um, f uh, food, you know, with a family member because the pandemic has made it so that they need to rely on these resources. And it was, you know, a story about that. And, um, and then the next moment I'm reading a story about a first date with a first love. And, and then the next story I'm reading a student about the moment of losing his father to COVID. I don't want to say it keeps me grounded because that is, I don't know, there's something about that doesn't feel right to me, but it just keeps me human getting to hear these stories. And also, you know, I, I just take, take very seriously sort of the call and the duty I have to make space for these students to express themselves and to also give them the tools that will help them express themselves. Um, it's also, it's just very humbling. I mean, it's also, you know, I, I have some of my dearest friends are like, oh, your students must be so happy. They have this, you know, two-time Nebraska Book Award winner and your husband's a state poet. And I'm like, you know what, they don't that doesn't matter to them. They don't, they're not absorbing that. You know, I'm still their instructor. I'm still, you know, logging in on Zoom. Did you turn in your essay? And then I'm going to give you some feedback. It's going to, I'm going to give you positive feedback, but I'm also going to critique the work, you know, so that you can revise and get it to where it needs to be. And, you know, I have to, and I get to kind of let go also of that poet persona in that space. And I'm more of a facilitator. 
and I think that's, you know, I think that's a really good thing too. So I get to kind of inhabit, I guess in the same way persona poems let you be in all these different spaces. My role as an instructor and a teacher lets me inhabit different parts of myself and um, and just, again, I just feel so just filled up with all these just incredible stories every semester. What are you writing now? Where is writing and creativity taking you right now? Well, I had just recently um, unearthed a bunch of poems that I had forgotten about, that I had written back in 2015, 2014, 2015, 2016. And I started putting them together and sort of seeing a, a common thread. And so I'm spending some time with, with that and kind of figuring out what, is, what are these poems trying to tell me? What is this collection sort of shaping up to be? What I can see in it is there's just a lot of, of uh, midlife crisis <laughs> poems. <laughs> you know, such a cliche, right? Poets are supposed to be moving beyond cliches. But um, a lot of, you know, just a lot of sort of longing and a lot of reflecting and a lot of trying to figure out you know, where I was at in my marriage and where I was at as a mother. And um, still, you know, I think again and again, no matter the poems, I, I seem to be constantly pulled towards trying to work through the tensions I feel um, as a mother, a wife, but also an artist, you know, and, and a poet and a free spirit. And how do I you know, I need to be grounded. And, and how do I stay grounded and stay rooted in this life that I chose, but still honor my art? You know, and I think this culture is so much about, like, sort of binary ways of thinking and being, you know, and um, when I was coming up and, and really becoming interested in poetry, the earliest poets that I loved, like, you know, Sylvia Plath, uh, and Sexton, you know, then I would find out more, I'd fall in love with their work and then find out more about them and find out like, oh, well, they had killed themselves. And so, it, you know, for me, I think early on, I thought, I'm going to have to pick or do I have to pick? And I will say for, for women, that really is still the case. But I, I have had so many instances where I've looked at other women's writing careers and been like, oh my gosh, like they wrote you know, five books of poetry, and they just won this big award. And then they were just given this teaching job at this great small liberal arts college, you know, and sort of looking to it to try to figure out like, you know, what was the path they took? And how do I and often behind that is a failed marriage, you know, or a choice or a deliberate choice not to have children, right? Or I know so many women who are like, so talented, brilliant, talented writers, who made the choice to get married and to have, you know, three or four children or, and they're just, 
there's just not the time and space yet to get the work out there, to vote, devote the time and attention that, that the work needs. And so, you know, that's the space that I'm always just embodying. Like, I want to honor my art. I need to be creating. But I also have, you know, people upstairs literally right now who, you know, I've, I'm doing their laundry and I have to feed them and then I have to clean those dishes and then I have to feed them again. And, you know, and, and I have a partnership with a, a wonderful man that I have to tend to. And the reality is, and I think what the, what the pandemic has really put into focus for me is, you know, when it comes down to it, the health of my relationship with my family is what really matters the most. And so I have to try, I have to trust, I'm working on trusting that it's all going to kind of ebb and flow. And, you know, there will be time when it's time and just sort of trust that there's a right time for everything. Like just kind of have that trust. My guest today has been poet and teacher Sarah McKinstry-Brown. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your creativity and your insight and your humanity. Thank you, Stuart. This has been really wonderful. It's really wonderful. Thank you. the end of this week's show you can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow the music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey I'm your host Stuart Chittenden and this is Live's radio show and podcast join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture community and more.
say, say feel that bass. We gon' shake up this place. Say pick up, pick up that bass. We got no time to waste. Everybody say feel that bass. We gon' shake up this place. Pick up, pick up that bass. We got no time to waste. Say dreams to chase. We ain't losing this race. Say, say, say we got faith. We know what it's gon' take. Ain't nobody gotta do for me. What I do when I do it so beautifully All I gotta stay is true to me Yeah, Stay winning is a mood to me Ay, Ain't nobody gotta do for me yep. What I do when I do it so beautifully All I gotta stay is true to me Say what? Stay winning is a mood to me Ay, ay, I said
wanderings, smiles come upon Tying strings to rain clouds, carving room for love forgone Footprints disappear below Sun and gravity, less than what we know ourselves and lose control never want to let this go into the cold not afraid to fall if this is something
you